0: Good morning, everyone. This is Raven Manuel. I am the government chair for the application development um, working group that is um, sponsored by um, ATAR. Today, we are going to be discussing new techniques, best practices, and a prescriptive approach for how government agencies can reduce software supply chain risks within their applications, as well as comply with the new government regulations with me i am joined by david ray from Microfocus, and robert uh, the gal go ahead robert tell me what your last name is Ficalia. 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 yeah um, out
1: the record. i'm gonna i'm gonna sorry i'm gonna take like, this chance to uh tell you i my battery of course is gonna go low so i'm gonna go off camera and go get a plug
0: okay oh. cool um at sunstone secure to discuss the the why, the need for the executive order and NIST guidance for software supply chain risk. Um, so I'm gonna start with David since Robert's going to get a power <laughs> to plug in his um, laptop. And we're gonna get started with you, David. And so tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do for your organization and how does this impact your, you, your work that you're doing? Sure. Well,
2: well first, uh, Braden, thank, thank you for, for having me on the, the podcast. And um, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a public sector CTO for Micro Focus Software. And uh, we're pretty, if people aren't familiar with Micro Focus, we're a very large you know, software producer. Um, one of the largest in the world from a pure play you know, software perspective. We have a lot of products that we push out every year. So as you, as you can imagine, um, in the executive order when it released on May 12th, Section four was pretty much dedicated to software producers, you know, like like Microsoft and Oracle and Micro Focus. Um, And a lot of the tools we actually produce on our end or for our for developers, you know, for load testing, for, you know, scanning code for for source code check in, you know, for that entire DevOps, you know, uh, process or tool chain. So for us, it 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 it, kind of really hit home. You know, we realized that. uh, the government is starting to implement regulations and they're gonna score you know, vendors, like an energy star rating on their ability to secure the software supply chain, you know, how we produce and develop software um, and what components you know, we put in our software. Um, so we've been working for about the last decade to really reduce insider threat you know, and, and, and improve our supply chain uh, but we hadn't had official guidance. So, so now we do. You know, There's going to be requirements for um, the software bill of materials where we're going to have to, uh, to drill in the dependencies of how our products are built um, and then communicate um, in a timely fashion on uh, a critical vulnerabilities or events when they occur um, um, to the government. And we, we're doing that already today, uh, but there was not regulation that required it. Um, so what we're, we're really going to have now is not only regulation, but an audit, I would imagine, starting next year in 2022, that's what the executive order said, uh, where they'll start ranking um, producers and software producers. Um, but what a lot, a lot of people didn't see in the executive order was that it also mandated that OMB create guidance and that NIST create guidance uh, working with CISA, which is what was just produced last week. Um, we have a draft. Uh, uh, software Security Maturity Model from from NIST. That is, uh, there's public comments are due uh, tomorrow on that from from the industry and from agencies. And then OMB also produced some draft uh, guidance on on how to align and secure the uh, zero trust environment for applications. Which is, you know, they have some very specific um, comments. Which uh, again, after they provide feedback, that will most likely become a memorandum. From OMB, which will uh, agencies will have to comply with. So there's so there's a whole lot there. Um, so I would I would imagine we're going to continue to um, to really uh, put a lot of uh, uh, emphasis on our software factory and our digital software factory internally, so that we can have a lot of compliance and automation around the steps that we use uh, today, you know, to build software, um, and so we can communicate a little more effectively with our customers and especially the government on how. How secure that is. Um, so hopefully that answered your question.
0: That actually did answer the question. Thanks, David. Robert, your turn. Who are you? Where do you like where do you work? How does this impact you?
1: Yes, hi. Robert Ficalia. I, I work at Sunstone Secure. I'm the CTO there. And we build tools uh, primarily for software companies looking to do business in the federal space. I'm here today representing the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, the CNCF. And we are a subgroup under the Linux Foundation. And so this is a nonprofit organization that is the custodian and administrator for uh, many different open source projects. But the one that probably most listeners have heard of is a project called Kubernetes. And that is a a container orchestration platform that powers many of the clouds and and growing fast. Uh, So we interact daily with all the large cloud providers. And increasingly, Uh, with with government agencies and public sector users. In fact, uh, in my role there as co-chair for the uh, policy working group, uh, I have a number of folks from NIST and uh, the various agencies that jump in and out of those work group meetings. In our CNCF security working group, uh, we also audit and assess other open source projects. And we, we see a lot of interest from the agency community and the public sector community uh, so much so that I, I started a a public sector channel in the cncf uh, community space we use we use slack primarily uh, so we're trying to really at least my group is trying to align our efforts in service to that growing community and you know why all this matters to me personally in in that role is is that we in the open source community of course all have day jobs and we've all had a history and either public sector or, or commercial industry software. Um, so we've been wrestling with these problems for a number of years, but in the open source community, you're building the software without mandates without without guidance. Um, it's a bit of the Wild West and then suddenly you're finding that your software is being used. Uh, to build uh, important platforms in service to the government and service to businesses and creating jobs um, and more and more, this is infrastructure is under attack. So, you know, we look very introspectively as a community and, and not only adding great features and new capabilities, but how we're gonna protect those capabilities out in the, in the world. Um, so supply chain, in many cases, we are the supply chain, right? We are the libraries, the packages that many commercial products rely on, whether it's, you know, anything from Linux, the operating system, the kernel, uh, to those higher-level you know, microservice platforms. Uh, most of that is in some way or another touching open source today. Uh, so for, for a number of months now, we've had a focus on things that aren't contained in the executive order. Uh, supply chain, uh, sorry, uh, software bill of materials, when, when that EO came out, actually the Kubernetes uh, community rallied within days and had an, an S-bomb produced. Um, managing images, managing source control, managing uh, security scanning in the pipelines. These were all topics that, uh, that we were discussing prior to the EO. So I think we're uniquely positioned to serve as uh, uh, subject matter experts in this area. And we're, we're looking forward to help the, the broader community address these problems.
0: That's awesome. I actually didn't, I am also part of the Linux, um, a member. And so, but I didn't know about your sub work group. So I'm going to join because I am really new to all of this. This is um, as a developer, um, I, am a, I am the senior application developer, but I'm also the person that has to advise my leadership on things that, that we need to be doing, right? And so I need to, I need to know. So the first thing I would want to know is why is this now a thing? Why, like, Robert, you did mention that there was no guidance and there was no, and David, you did too, that there was no guidance, there was no rules around this. It seems to me that this has to do with security because, Robert, you said that infrastructure is under attack, right? Um, Government has always been security conscious, right? Mm, Theoretically, has always been, you know, security conscious. So you would think that... This um, that this would already be embedded in the in the life cycle and software, anybody dealing with federal government, right? Um, so why now? Why is there an executive order? Why is there a need for the two guidance from NIST and OMB? And I'll start with you, David, to give you a chance, oh, Robert, oh, to sure. figure it out. I, I think um, although this
2: has been uh, occurring for some time you know that obviously the the breach we had with, with with solar winds was was critical across government and commercial agencies but there's also been in the last year since that uh, a over a 600 increase in attacks as part of the software supply chain and especially with a lot of the open source tools that, that robert mentioned because it, it exposed vulnerabilities you know if we can attack the software supply chain we can get access to to critical um, accounts and critical data, especially in government and commercial organizations. So we've seen several for Microsoft, for uh, code coverage tools, for for testing tools. Um, and although all these are tracked, you know, it's it's it, it really you know shined a light um, on a problem that the government needed needed to address. So you know, I think that combined with the uh, in critical infrastructure attacks that occurred with Colonial Pipeline and other things that are occurring from a cyber perspective, it really pressed the uh, the administration to do something now with the executive order. Um, that was just the beginning. I think in the executive order there are directives and dates assigned, and there was over you know 35 directives to CISA, for example, you know um, around this, and they have to ad- ad- address them. Um, so we're starting to see things come out now of exactly what what the what this effects will be and what the what the policies will be um, uh, put on agencies. So in the past there were there were things like in FISMA, I think there was a requirement to scan code once a year, you know, from a, a, on the federal, federal side. Um, in DOD, in the NDAA, there were more strict guidelines on how they should do and build software and how they incorporate software. And there's always been approved vendors list and we've had things like that in, in, in government. Um, but there's never been any rules on how you build your software, right? Uh, some Lewis guidance was in uh, the Buy America Act and ITAR, you know, that, so you could develop it all over the world as long as it's manufactured here in the U.S., you were okay. Um, and that's still the case, you know, today. So this is providing some more instructions on, you know, how we build our software in the industry. And it's also going to become uh, requirements for agencies for how they build their software, which to me is a much bigger problem You know, sure, industry provides critical software for agencies, but agencies have thousands of applications which they push out all the time. And there's very little guidance on how they're built, you know, um, in government. There's no enterprise services for developers. There's very few enterprise-based source code repositories. Each program or project has their own. Um, There's very few uh, um, policies to review um, in, in government you know, um, code and do design walkthroughs that are formal uh, and lockdown or, or insider threat capability for developers. All those things you know, don't exist. So if you look at all the attack vectors in the software build chain, um, that's what the guidance was meant to, to lock down. Um, and so they're, they're, the best practices I think are pretty welcome. They've certainly been out there for a while. It's not new. Um, it's just there's never been policy
0: around it and you need policy for that. Robert, before you answer that, David, I would, um, just for the people who are not used to all of the acronym, acronyms, um, what is CISA and what is FISMA? Can you just tell oh, me? Oh, sure, sure. Are? The Federal Information
2: Security uh, uh, Management Act, I believe that's what the M is for. And, and okay. I, I, they were talking on the Hill this week, they interviewed the DHS, the, um, uh, uh, the new agency in DHS, which is CISA, It's it's giving them authority um, uh, to to help critical infrastructure um, customers in the government, as well as giving them authority on on rules around um, supply chain risk and analysis across agencies. So, you know, CISA was basically created a a few years ago, it's it's a relatively new agency, Um, but they're getting more and more responsibility in in, in this space. Uh, I I think the guidance will probably come from OMB, but it will be based on best practices from NIST and then how CISA believes it should be secured. So they're all working together.
0: Cool, Robert, what I want you to do before you answer is to um, really shortly, from your perspective, what is the supply chain? You're the software supply chain, right? For somebody who's new and doesn't have a clue at, um, at non-leadership level that knows what that is? Explain what that means, What define it, I guess.
1: Well, I'll start at, at the highest level and then maybe drill down a little bit into it. Um, but succinctly, I mean, the supply chain is every bit of technology that goes into a software platform or software product that is critical to your operations, critical to your mission, critical to your business, or critical to your open source project. Uh, So that could include, you know, everything from the developer tools you're using uh, to the source code control system that has those bits and bytes that you compile into software or interpreted on the cloud platform. All the way through to third party dependencies. And I think this is where most of the attention is being pointed. What are the third party dependencies that are outside of my control. Uh, I didn't necessarily choose them. I, I picked something off the shelf. Maybe it was a language, maybe it was a a cloud, maybe it was an application and embedded in that with or without my knowledge is a whole array of other software uh, that I might never have heard of, thought about, or cared about everything from keeping time in sync uh, to, you know, managing memory and disks or, you know, things like that. So, um, I think to the non-practitioner, it, the best way to think about it is, you know, from a risk-based perspective, what risks am I inviting into my business? And does somebody in the organization, who understands all of this stuff, does somebody really have visibility on on these risks and how to manage them? And you know, as a, as a leader, am I funding uh, the mandate to keep all of this secure, uh, and giving you the the people, the the tools, and the resources necessary? So. I think that's one key takeaway uh, because I think this executive order and some of the guidance we're getting is great. um, But I do, you know, I do feel like without the right training, without the right skills, without the right funding, um, it's going to be difficult for organizations who are enthusiastic about meeting this goal and uh, achieving success. They're, they're kind of set up for failure.
0: So why now is it a thing again? I mean, to me, it just what no, you just, just, when you broke it down, just I, for me, I actually look at security. Like we, we can't even, we have a TRB process that looks at security. So why is it now a thing?
1: So I think, the, I think that there's a couple of changes over the last 20 years where security 20 years ago was about controlling static assets, you know, fixed, bundles of software that that you more or less had full control over Uh, if you were producing it in-house you were familiar with source control systems you were familiar with change management systems ticketing systems Uh, you had code reviews you'd have design reviews you'd have female reviews you'd have testing quality assurance so you, you really had a sense of you know soup to nuts you had control over the process over the people it was Probably entirely captive. Maybe use some expert consultants, and you brought those in, and you know they went through training and they had to sign all sorts of paperwork. Um, or you bought it from a vendor, and then as part of that due diligence process, you checked their bona fides. Did they have certifications? Were they lab tested? Did they go through a FIPs process? Did they, you know, what what common control, uh, common criteria? So there were all sorts of paperwork processes to give you. An assurance of control of those assets now fast forward you know, maybe 10 years and as the cloud emerged people had to make this decision of how much control do i want to relinquish to gain operational benefits and i think many organizations are just starting to struggle with that uh, and and are continuing that journey still uh, that's not complete but those of us now, you know, ten years later, who have embraced the cloud wholeheartedly uh, for those operational gains, for those efficiencies, now taking a really strong look at okay, what what risks did I inherit? Um, what what can I trust, and how can I build a, a, a proof, if you will, around the that trust? Uh, because all the things that David mentioned, there there are clearly are attacks um, and. I would argue those have always been there. I think now that the cloud platforms are more central to everyone's daily lives, they're far more visible and I think there's far more leverage on the attacker side. You you can attack once and and you know harvest value many times by attacking the cloud platforms, by attacking these shared uh, infrastructure tools. Uh, it's no longer investing you know, time and energy on one particular target and then having to move on to the next target from scratch. You're really leveraging uh, the, the investment the attacker makes in building tools and analyzing systems and understanding the, the data flows, that's all reusable. And I think all of us as software practitioners uh, at some point in our career recognize the value of reuse Uh, You know, good software that can be reused, good practices that can be reused are highly leverageable, and we're seeing that on on the attack side. They're leveraging tools and and techniques and processes and frameworks and, in a sense, productizing attack. And that's why I think now, at this point in history, this is coming to a head. And why not just government in this we see this in, in industry as well large organizations are are starting to look very carefully at their supply chain of vendors. And software tools and asking them the same tough questions, how do you know that your supply chain and your third party dependencies are, are secure, so I think that's why now because of that yeah. confluence of cloud and that on the attack side leveraging and reusing these capabilities. Uh, almost in in a productized way.
0: So from an open source, I'll stick with you for a moment, and then I'll go to you, David, for the same question. Is the guidance that you're, that um, open source, the open source community that you're receiving from NIST and OMB, is it detailed enough for you to, um, for one, the public sector, those agencies to actually be able to draft internal policies and implement processes as well as for your for the open source community is it enough
1: well i think the challenge the, the cultural challenge in the in the open source community is you know i think there is a natural uh, rebelliousness and kind of the desire not to have policies and procedures for their own sake so I think, you know, one half of the, the community, I'm, I'm just arbitrarily picking half of it, one side of the community would look at policies and procedures as a barrier to true security. And, you know, at the end of the day, they might argue that, you know, if, if it's secure, you don't really need the policies and procedures. So let's worry about the security part first. On the other side, I think you'd have those who, who definitely see the value of getting everybody on the same page clearly articulating the goals and the priorities so that we can take a more risk-based approach because you can't boil the ocean, you can't solve all the problems tomorrow. So you do need to prioritize where you focus your attention and, and uh, you know where you address specific security deficiencies. Uh, so I think it's, it's a challenge in the open source community to try to get these two camps together and they're probably uh, many different fractured sub camps uh, with nuanced perspectives and so grossly oversimplifying. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a natural tension in the community to try to kind of move fast and, and break things, as we've heard. And then on the other side, try to slow it down and, and look you know, holistically at what we're creating and who's using it and what are the risks. Um, so I, yeah, I think that's that's a problem we face. And I think the good news is that we have we have folks on either side of the the, the equation that are very engaged, you know, volunteering their time. Uh, or aligning their their company, if they're part of a commercial uh, entity, aligning their entire company's strategy around the the open source community and solving some of these problems. Uh, So uh, I'm happy to drill down into the how a little bit uh, next, but
0: that's... That'll uh, be our next podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) David, what's your... Go ahead. Sorry, Robert. What did you say?
1: (laughs) That that can be an entire podcast at each layer.
0: <laughs> exactly, David. How do you feel? Like so, I'm um, responding to Robert and and in your own experience.
2: Sure. Well, I, I agree with Robert. The um, I think it's uh, over the last decade or so, the focus of security has mainly been on the perimeter and on protecting the network. And from a government perspective, it's mainly around compliance, right? And compliance with security controls that that NIST recommended are in place but they're shifting in government now to more of a, a, a risk-based approach. And that's what the Zero Trust effort is all about, you know, that was recently you know, produced, is shifting your focus to, to prevent risks. And one of the areas that is of high risk is software, right? Um, and I think that's because of the changes um, with moving software to the cloud, software as a service, and how software is built. It's built basically by components. A lot of times the developers don't really understand the components they're using. They just want one piece of it. And so they 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 pull this plugin down, they pull a library down, they use it, they get their code done. But they really don't understand the code they used to, to develop the software with. And this happens on the commercial side as well as you know within government. And because of the exposures and the recent attacks that occurred in the software supply chain, now everybody seems to really all of a sudden, you know, care, right? About uh, is my software secure before I install this on my network? Is it going to create uh, problems? Um, uh, with the recent attack that occurred with Winds, the problem existed for months before it was detected. It was very, very difficult to detect because everybody assumed the software was secure because it was signed. You know, so how did it, the question is how did a vendor have software that was signed, which means the agency assumed that it was secure because it came from the producer. Therefore, we're gonna use it. And so that shared trust model broke down. And so now the the government wants to fix it, they're basically not trusting anymore. They're saying, we're gonna rank vendors on their ability to produce software. We're gonna put policy in place to make sure that that people um, understand the components that they're using when they're developing software and make sure they're secure. And to your question about guidance, I think the this guidance is, is great. It's, it's a series of practice areas that outlines more or less different things you can do in each practice area to better secure your uh, your software development lifecycle. Um, how that's interpreted by industry or by government is still yet to be determined, right? Whether we'll have policies based on that. But the guidance has been around for a long time. They simply referenced existing secure software, build security in, the CMMI, you know, uh, software maturity models that are, that are out there and they reference them as well as referencing existing NIST uh, uh, risk management frameworks yeah. already in place and pull it together um, just to, 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 to explain how you can better secure software. But they did add some unique things in there, um, which Robert, I'd love your comments on. One was they want commercial producers like us to, to flow down acquisition contract language to the people that we, we purchase components from um, to make sure that they're compliant with the same, you know, the same um, uh, standards that we're signing up to be compliant with across the government. I don't know how we do that from an open source perspective. Who accepts that liability? Who signs it? Right. And, and so we use a ton of open source. And as you mentioned, Robert, you know, a lot, most of the libraries, we've moved everything to microservices with uh, Kubernetes and Across our ITOM portfolio, for example, and um, uh, they're they're pure cloud-based uh, cloud architecture-based applications today. Um, so, if those contracts have to change, you know, I'm just curious, you know, which vendor is going to sign up, you know, for that liability to provide that software to us so that we can comply with um, if there is regulation in the government, you know, that comes out from the NIST guidance, which I anticipate there will be, you know, how how we can. Uh, actually comply with our open source components. Otherwise, we'll have to to buy a, a commercial, you know, components. You know,
1: yeah. So I I will. I'll address that on a couple of levels. Um. You know, first and foremost, I think contractually, there's never going to be an open source organization, even at the scale of Linux Foundation or CNCF, that's going to sign. You know, a, a government contract or or industry yeah. contract and take responsibility. It's just outside of the the foundational principles of of what open source is about. Uh, But that said, there are a number of of commercial entities who are very aligned with uh, either specific open source projects uh, or are kind of compiling or aggregating all of these components into a holistic platform that can either be installed in your on-prem environment as as your on-prem cloud or installed on the actual public clouds or government uh, environments in those clouds uh, or some hybrid model. And I think that's where you'll see those organizations, you know, some are large, some are very small and niche Uh, are they're going to want to work with an open source community that has actual structure behind it. So rather than just pulling, you know, random code off of GitHub, uh, going to the Linux Foundation or CNCF or you know any uh, number of uh, Apache and other groups that put together really a process, uh, a formalized community with, you know we have all of our our regulation, bylaws, procedural rules all encoded and transparent. and in 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 our group where we look specifically at the projects, we we mentor them through this, maturation from you know incubation sandbox you know fully graduated and we have a delineated number of checks that they have to pass through including a a semi-formal uh review at the beginning and then a very formal uh code audit and you know penetration test if you will security audit at the very end for graduation and that's where the membership dues that, that the corporate entities provide to the Linux Foundation and CNCF pay for that external audit. It's driven by the community. In fact, I'm, I'm uh, part of that effort for the Kubernetes project itself. And we work very closely with you know the, the best of the best of auditors and practitioners. Uh, so we get the best of both worlds. We get the open source community guiding it uh, without bias and with an eye towards the the broader use of the platform but we really get to to pick the best practitioners who can assess the security so all that is is in service to having essentially uh, a brand name behind the open source that that your company your agency will be using and you know that there is a very transparent process and artifacts that can be used to build a, a trust proof uh, for your organization. So whether that will be rise to the level needed, David, for the contracting process, I think that has yet to be tested and, and there's a lot of discovery there, but it's certainly better than not having that infrastructure. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And and we
2: don't have a contract with any of our open source providers today, right? There's no acquisition. It's, it's <laughs> so, so in a lot of ways, uh, we could make sure all the uh, acquisitions we have made for the components we're purchasing our S bomb and we flow down clauses to, but not for open source. That's I think that may be acceptable. And maybe the government will help with providing a, a list of approved or vetted versions or signed versions of uh, a binary artifactory that we could leverage um, so that we, we get the, the approved, tested, vetted versions you're talking about, Robert. Because I think that's really where uh, I've seen the, the most risk is when when you're doing builds Uh, you should be pulling from a third party vetted uh, a binary r factory right or from your your approved set of code it shouldn't just go out to the internet and pull down the latest (laughs) so that's that's a little scary and a lot of times that happens you know because the developers uh have just built their build scripts that way to to give me the latest version um check it out of github um and that's that's a little a little scary you know especially when this software is being used for a critical component so I think we'll have uh, obviously some better controls for, as a producer over that. We do that today internally, we're doing that. We have our own secure binary artifactory. But the government may want to produce something as well that we, we draw from. Um, uh, that would be one way to control it.
1: Yeah, I think that you, you've hit the nail on the head is that the point of distribution, uh, I think there's going to be a need for organizations or the government uh, to, Define what that what the requirements are for that. So how do we how do we maintain provenance? How was this artifact generated? Is it is it, you know do we have a proof? Is it falsifiable? Is there you know repudiation? Do we have that S bomb? Do we know what those dependencies are? Um, and and that doesn't need to be a central you know global repository that everybody pulls from. In fact, I would argue against that. I would say that you want to have the the architecture and the design and the plans defined for how to project that proof and that trust so that anyone could build that artifactory and then make that available to their community rather than have one single entity that everyone starts to trust again because now again now we're just setting up another single point of failure and it makes it a very attractive target for attackers and it, you know if if any one step uh fails then you know you've got a real problem so i i'd encourage the process of building that Artifactory be as transparent and uh, uh, documented as possible and build in those controls in a, in a regenerative way. I'm very, I, I, a kind of example of this is a project called Sigstore, and they had a, a very transparent open you know master key ceremony all you know captured on a, a webinar and all the participants were transparent about who they work for what their roles are. Uh, so it can all be reconstructed either de novo, if you wanted to create a a separate SIG store, uh, or you could audit, anyone could audit that process and see all the binary artifacts and who was involved from from day zero. So I think if we can build those levels of of trusted, or sorry, provable trusted entities uh, for distribution, that would go a long way.
0: Robert, and I'm gonna ask you, David, um, because you do have developers in your organization but from the open source community, Robert, um, how do you see that adding all of um, all of these considerations, adding them to and we're going to talk about from just from the development, because that's where it starts, right? How will it impact speed like um, speed of being able to um, get the software? to the end, like to be able to be produced, as well as skill um, for the developers. How is that going to impact that?
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, the impacts are, are kind of multi dimensional. So uh, as a practitioner, I, I can see this, you know, a couple of different ways. This is now a whole lot of work I have to do that I never had to do before. And I might feel helpless or un, in, inadequately prepared uh, to, you know, understand all these concepts. You know, what is a CI/CD pipeline? What is what is DevOps? What's you know, what's a a container? You know, I might never have had to worry about this. I'm a I'm a C programmer, and I that's what I've been doing the last 20 years, and I do it very well. Um, uh, on the flip side, there's so many great tools that lift uh, the burden from you as an individual programmer and make this process easier. Uh, One example that, you know, all of us as developers have probably struggled through code reviews, right? So, you know, it used to be that you'd print out the code and everyone would sit around the table and it was this very clunky process. Then we got to screen share and we could at least, you know, kind of hover the mouse over things in front of a projector. You know, today you've got these tools that will pop up and scaffold those reviews and, and pinpoint, you know, code smells or security hotspots. And it was just an aha moment for me personally when starting to use these tools. Wow. I I no longer have to swap into memory all the hundreds, if not thousands of non-contextualized concerns that are swimming around in the head. And I'm trying to bring this to bear on this very specific block of code that we're reviewing, you know, typically, you know, between other meetings when there are lots of competing pressures. I now have this tool that's going to surface the most important things to spend my time on. And I think that's where we're gonna see that trend continue where the developers are gonna get, it doesn't have to be fancy AI, uh, but that is coming. We're gonna get more and more help around focusing our our very valuable time and attention on the right areas and making sure we're prioritizing in a risk-based way where we should be applying our our gray matter. And I think that's that's something that eventually developers will embrace and they'll see that, look, I'm, I'm making a real contribution, demonstrably to the security of this product or or platform, and the tools are helping me do that. I might have to learn a few more concepts. I have, may have to broaden my skill set uh, into areas that I've never had to work with before. But you know, some some tool and some platform will have my back and help me do that effectively.
0: Hold on to that thought of tools, David, because your products have to be more timely than open source, right? Because open source can actually produce when they get there. But for you, a product development um, organization, how is this gonna impact your development lifecycle?
2: Sure, well, um, we started actually about four years ago building a a digital software factory. And and the goal was was to innovate faster and improve our release cadence. And we went from one or two annual releases of our software to, to monthly releases. And we transitioned how we're building software with microservices and containers and uh, building a, so- a digital software factory that supported CI/CD and automation. Um, and we had a lot of support um, from developers, but we had mostly local excellence. We didn't have enterprise visibility or excellence. And that's, that's why we, we, we wanted to develop this uh, larger you know, digital um, uh, software factory. When we started putting policies in place um that's when we started getting resistance from all the development teams you know we we didn't want we didn't want to put a burden on those developers to all these extra curricular activities that wasn't part of their development tasks like being a security analyst for for code dependencies um and what we found is they they don't do a very good job at things that are outside their, their wheelhouse and they'll just simply do a compliance check they try and finish it as quickly as they can, so they can get back to writing code. Um, and that wasn't good enough for us, right? We, we really wanted to, 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 to strengthen that whole process. So we ended up um, developing enterprise services for developers and having system owners and business owners assigned to critical pieces in that software build process, like security scanning. So we're today across 5,000 developers, 300 products, we're doing 20 to 30 million lines of code we scan daily. Um, that's not something you can just ask the development teams to do. We had to provide it as an enterprise service. We had to create a wiki. We had to have uh, uh, assurance that it was being done. We had to have audits, hold people accountable. And probably the most important thing is we needed executive sponsors you know, in the organization that, that, that wanted to help us drive this change. So it was, um, it was a huge effort and it wasn't necessarily a technology Uh, effort it was a policy adoption uh, change management effort to get everybody on board Um, and the only way it was successful for us was to remove that burden from the developers and provide things as a service so that you were adding value And if you weren't adding value and making their lives easier it it usually didn't get adopted Um, and that was one of the hard lessons we learned you know which took a lot of mistakes a thousand mistakes that we made you know Simply saying it I'll shall do this doesn't mean it's gonna get done. Um, people don't like it, they leave your organization, right? Or, or they don't think it should be done that way, they won't do it that way. And then you have a choice, you know, <laughs> what, what do you do? Um, so I think uh, we, we certainly learned a lot, you know, through that process, but um, uh, it, it's, it, it's moving from local excellence to enterprise excellence, I think is, is the in, important lesson we learned there um, and the enterprise services. So hopefully that answers. You. your
0: question. Absolutely. So we have, at, we have like negative minutes left, but um, we did receive a question from one of our colleagues um, from another working group, and I'm gonna address it to you, Robert, and then David, if you wanna um, chime in. So the question is, what do you do beyond preventative tools to address the growing amount of open, soft, open source software in the federal government supply chain? Robert.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, certainly understanding what you have. So getting getting all your dependencies mapped. <laughs> so there are some commercial tools. We'll keep names out of it. Uh, there, there are, you know, some minimal open source. Unfortunately, this is a weak spot in the open source tooling. Um, but uh, you do need to get your arms around what you're using today and have a very Focused effort. It doesn't have to take weeks or months. You, we've done this exercise on open source projects You know, you can do it in a couple of concerted weeks uh, Depending on the size of the the platform or the part the project uh, But you do need to do that first foundational step to understand what you've got Because from there you're going to find that a lot of it is legacy that you no longer need so applying lots of tools and scanners on you know arguably 50% of your code that you're no longer using uh, is going to be a waste of everyone's time. So I, I guess that would be my first recommendation. Uh, then you have to look. You know, a lot of these answers have been discovered already. So you, you don't have to look at a blank sheet of paper and try to construct something de novo. Um, I will. I will. You know, mention there's a framework uh, Google had uh, released called Salsa S L S A. Uh, it also has kind of maturity overlays. So you can be Salsa one, Salsa two. It gives you a good framework to look at. Um, you can you can start thinking about your pipeline, your your source code, the build process, and some of these topics that we've talked about and the, the provenance and the security of, of both the, the users and the interdependent libraries. Um, but I, you know, I think you have to you have to have a plan. You can't just kind of wing it as you go. I think that would be my, my strongest recommendation. Sit down and put something down on paper, even if it's an outline, it's going to go a long way in scaffolding uh, what the next steps are.
0: David. Yeah,
2: well, outside of you know helping with the with the code and providing services, we 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 started using user behavioral analytics on the development community. And the reason we we did that was you know to align to more of a, a zero trust model for the code and the data and the access. So why is this developer accessing this library? It's not part of his uh, software bill of materials. Why is he looking at it? Why did he check it out? Or should he have rights to it? And so it's, you know, rather than giving every developer rights to everything, only give them rights to what they need. Um, And then if they go outside those behavioral, you know, um, uh, assignments, you know, if you see them doing things like sending screenshots of source code through email, you know, you can ask questions, you know, and stop that activity. And once we deploy this, we found all kinds of strange activity. To be honest, you know, and, and and then sometimes there were really legitimate reasons why they were doing things, other times not not so legitimate, right? And so you you can uh, you can deploy some of those techniques we use against our user community to the development community, um, uh, and then get some some better insights and do a better job as 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 Robert mentioned, not not winging it, but setting up um, real build environments that are locked down, source code environments are locked down, artifactories that are locked down that are that are controlled you know, through your process that um, adhere back to policy. And I think those those are uh, probably the best things
0: you can do. Thank you both. This has been for me for sure. The because this is what that podcast is for, it was actually for me. (laughs) This has been extremely informative. I really do appreciate your insight um, and your sharing of what you're doing, your best um, sort of your best practices. We're going to have more podcasts around this topic, and I'm definitely going to be inviting you both back to. to share more about that because this is really important. And like Robert said, there's like layers upon layers that people need to understand. And so we, um, because we're writing a white paper about it, we really need to um, engage more in the community, find out what their needs are so we can actually embed that into the the white paper. So I thank you both for one being here and speaking your mind and um, representing your organizations. And I believe that's it, thank you.